Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. Early modern court politics is a well-trodden path of historical understanding, but what did the common people think about the seismic shifts of the Tudor and Stuart periods? What gave rise to the so-called public sphere where people outside the nexus of aristocratic power had a voice? I'm Charlie Bowden, a first-year history student at Jesus College, Oxford, and I'm speaking to Dr. Ellen Patterson, stipendiary lecturer in history at Mansfield and Oriel Colleges, about the importance of popular politics in early modern England. Hi, Ellen. Thanks so much uh, for agreeing to do this podcast with me. No, no problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So uh, we're talking today about uh, popular politics in early modern England, uh, and particularly sort of the development of the public sphere during that time. Uh, so just to start, could you explain uh, what the public sphere is and why did a notion of it begin to develop in this specific period? Yeah, so the public sphere is a really interesting concept. Um, it was kind of first um, sort of associated with a kind of German um, thinker called kind of Jürgen Habermas. And it's this idea that we kind of see in the later 17th and 18th centuries, a real kind of growth of the space where there's rational critical debate. People can kind of start talking about political issues, economic issues in a space that's free from government interference. Um, it's really associated with kind of coffee house cultures and seen as being uh, really a place where kind of people could come together and discuss issues that they might not have been doing before. And um, what's really interesting is that historians have started applying that concept to the Tudor and Stuart periods as a way to try and understand um, how kind of non-elite subjects are engaging in politics and the sorts of issues that they're discussing, where they're discussing them. Um, and it really... It's really been applied particularly uh, by Peter Lake and Stephen Pincus to what they call the kind of post-Reformation public sphere, which is this idea that in the 1530s, particularly because of kind of confessional conflict and the Reformation, we start seeing a real growth in people engaging in kind of quite public discussion of political and religious issues. Um, they're kind of using things like print to articulate opinions. Um, they also kind of discuss the way in which the government is really appealing to this kind of public sphere. So it's really been used as a concept to try and understand how, put simply, kind of non-elite subjects could start engaging in political discourse and discussion. And so I think that um, sort of court politics of Tudor and Stuart England are quite sort of a well-worn uh, mm. uh, sort of topic for Definitely. both... Uh, sort of historical research and you know sort of teaching in schools um what impact do you think the public sphere had on uh, sort of the court politics of Tudor and Stuart England yeah so I think it's really interesting because we often kind of just look at kind of kings and queens and kind of courtiers and people specific kind of nobles that interest us like Essex or Buckingham but kind of looking at the kind of idea of the public sphere allows us to see how again kind of non-elites and maybe people that aren't themselves courtiers are getting news of what's happening at court and so some of these kind of debates and issues that are kind of um, really interesting people in court so concern with financial policies of the crown or concerns over particular kind of foreign policy treaties are actually leaving court and being something that's engaged with by kind of a wider kind of group of people and I think it really encourages us to kind of look again beyond just as interesting as kind of kings and queens are for this period thinking about how the things they're doing the kind of things that Henry VIII's doing that we all know about through Netflix documentaries are actually impacting the kind of lived realities of kind of ordinary subjects and I think in that sense it really kind of enriches our understanding of of 
you know the world of non-elites which is really fascinating kind of topic absolutely um and obviously a sort of parallel to this during the early morning period we have the sort of rise of the printing press Mm. as well um what role did the printing press play in sort of the rise of the public sphere yes the printing press is absolutely huge we have a massive growth of information that's just being put out through a variety of forms particularly like pamphlets also really interestingly ballads kind of single sheet news ballads became quite a thing and they kind of are simultaneously a form of entertainment they might be making fun of a particular courtier for example um, but at the same time they could really be used to convey information on particular kind of foreign policy events even kind of domestic events to subjects and these things were printed um, particularly if they're on a single sheet they're often fairly cheap Um, they can be circulated historians have shown how a lot of this material even if it's printed in areas like London um, can still find its way into rural areas through kind of merchants clothiers are really big ones for kind of spreading news and print definitely has a part to play in that because it is allowing kind of information to be kind of circulated and kind of disseminated in the public sphere more broadly. Um, But at the same time, I think it's important when we look at print to be sensitive to the fact that it's not suddenly... The growth of print leads people to all of a sudden be politically engaged. It's definitely affecting the volume of information that's available, but we need to recognise that people could spread news and information, particularly through like oral culture, um, and also through manuscripts and kind of manuscript pamphleteering. So work by people like Noah Millstone and Adam Fox has really highlighted that. Um, but definitely the kind of printing press is, is often seen as being really important for kind of enhancing just how much information was available to people. And it definitely played a role. Yeah, so as you sort of just touched on, um, you know, it wasn't just in this period that, you know, common people came interested mm. in politics, but what sort of specific issues politicised them sort of during this period and how did they yeah. exercise their agency? Definitely, so a big one is religion. So it, we've got so many kind of massive religious changes happening in the kind of Tudor and Stuart period and these are affecting people's kind of daily lives, it's a very religious society. Um, so religion is a key one. You'll often see a really interesting example of kind of the multitude of ways in which people could kind of exercise agency is even through things like prophecy. So we have an example in um, Henry VIII's reign of a woman named Elizabeth Barton who became known as the Holy Maid of Kent because she claims to have prophecies that if Henry continues in his divorce from Catherine of Aragon and his marriage to Anne Boleyn, um, he'll die, which is a really bold thing to be kind of saying. Um, and in this sense, it was a way for her to kind of and her supporters to kind of communicate their ideas about the kind of reformation and religious change um, through quite kind of an interesting form that we might not necessarily ascribe to kind of giving people kind of political agency. Um, So religion is huge. Also socioeconomic changes. So by focusing on so much on religion in this idea we spoke about at the beginning about this post-reformation public sphere we sometimes lose the place of things like economics which are which are really engaging people um so people were sometimes rising in rebellion because of practices like enclosure which is kind of literally the the fencing off of normally with hedges of kind of common land and that really affects kind of village relations leads to landlord tenant relations those sort of issues are leading people to do things like rebel Um, they're leading things to do things like petition which is another huge way that people are engaging Um, taxation then as now it's quite a contentious issue at points so that's causing people to engage Um, so really being aware of the fact that there are kind of 
multitude of kind of factors that are politicizing people in this period and a multitude of ways that they can engage and on that point historians have really emphasized whereas previously riot and rebellion was seen as being the kind of key way in which people could engage in politics and of course it's really interesting to study riots and rebellions um but it's a lot more varied than that and there are a lot more kind of subtle or kind of everyday forms in which people could participate um even through things like speech, like even just articulating what was known as seditious speech and kind of criticising the king or the queen, for example, that, that's kind of a way to kind of engage in politics. Yeah, so shifting focus slightly to perhaps one of those sort of violent things uh, that mm. you mentioned, um, obviously one of the uh, most significant uh, political events of the Stuart period, or that sort of, I guess, broke up the Stuart period into Stuarts and not Stuarts is mm. the English Civil War. Yeah. Um, and so how did sort of the history of popular politics and the public sphere, um, how has that sort of begun to change uh, sort of perceptions of, you know, sort of what caused the Civil War yeah. and the things that were sort of bubbling under that led to it? So it's definitely a huge and interesting kind of topic that plays into what is an absolute historiographical kind of minefield of different <laughs> opinions on the causes of the British Civil Wars. Um, I guess a key way is kind of David Underdown's work, kind of revel... Uh, Revel, Riot and Rebellion is all on the way in which, whereas historians previously in the past maybe suggested that things like civil war allegiance and kind of the ways in which people decided whether to support kind of parliament or the king um, were often just shaped by them being kind of deferent to authority. So you do whatever your kind of, your tenant kind of local gentry were doing. Um, but it's really been shown and his his work while it's been challenged on, on different points is interesting for kind of arguing that you know people weren't just deferent though they had their own reasons for kind of being parliamentarian or royalist um and other scholars have kind of run with that in, in different ways so john walter talks a lot about kind of popular parliamentarianism and how things like anti-popery are really encouraging people to start supporting parliament but i think what it's really done in recent years in what's been termed post-visionism is to kind of bring the focus to kind of politics out of doors, as it's often referred to, and kind of how people are mobilising public opinion, particularly in the kind of period 1640 to 1642, right up into kind of the run-up to the civil wars, um, the sorts of issues that are causing people to turn to things like petitions, um, kind of crowd action in those years. And it's kind of, in that sense, allowed us to move away from a a high court political narrative of the civil war because it's allowed historians to start looking at okay well how are kind of non-elite subjects engaging with what is a massive kind of set of changes um and move away from maybe older um older notions that this is simply a dispute between kind of king and parliament or at the same time move away from kind of marxist ideas that this is about kind of the rise of, of different kind of capitalist classes um so the politics out of doors thing is the kind of main way that that's helped to enrich our understanding. Yeah, so looking at the period in sort of a more general sense, uh, you've mentioned, you know, various uh, historical authors and various uh, books that have sort of mm. uh, changed the scope of uh, historiography in this period when it comes yeah. to the public sphere. But um, do you think there's been sort of a general shift uh, mm. in the historiography over time with regard to the importance of popular politics? Yeah, absolutely. So th there were kind of previous works that used to argue that 
before that we had this kind of assumption that non-elites were pretty uninterested and and also just unengaged and had no means to kind of really know what was going on at the centre. We had a lot of historians that spoke a lot about things like localism and the kind of idea that people aren't really bothered about what's going on uh, beyond their kind of immediate localities and kind of uh, neighbourhoods um, and we've really what the kind of historiography of popular politics has done is it's just completely turned that on its head and kind of shown the ways in which people kind of there are two main veins in, in the way that it's done this but the first is that people were absolutely informed of things that were happening at the centre even if they you know they weren't living in London they weren't directly kind of near to the core um, and our understanding, as we said before, of things like print culture, the means by which kind of news spreads and communication networks in this period, the variety of news that was available in its forms has really helped there. Um, and historians like Richard Cust have been quite good for kind of showing how important that news network was. Um, and at the same time, the historiography has also pointed to just the varied methods by which people could participate. Um, Again, going back to what we were saying before about kind of riots, rebellions, petitioning, speech, prophecy, and even the church. The church has been seen as a space where people would be exposed to news via sermons, thanksgiving services. Um, so it's really kind of challenged those kind of preconceptions that historians used to have that, that for most people political matters were unimportant and a really important kind of collection to look at for this is Tim Harris's The Politics of the Excluded which has kind of different historiographical essays addressing kind of different aspects of this question and also just which is a point I think we'll come on to but how we look at the kind of early modern state as well um, has been really enriched by kind of popular politics and the historiography here as well. Yeah so as you just said um it's sort of been argued uh, by some historians that the public sphere emerged in this period because people started to see themselves as more citizens than just subjects of a monarch. Um, and so what's your sort of take on this notion of like an early modern, early modern nation state? Yeah, so the, the state um, and the early modern state is really interesting because this is a period where in kind of early modern Europe historiography more broadly, there's perception that we have a rise of kind of the fiscal military state, um, war and the military revolution are seen as being really important for that. It's a period where we have the growth of bureaucracies, more kind of centralization. Um, but I really am interested in kind of the ways in which the state and government is kind of operating. And, and this is the idea that kind of the kind of British state in this period, as it were, isn't able to do a lot of things without the participation of kind of of, of its subjects. So really important here is ideas of kind of um, Mark Goldie has this idea of the kind of unacknowledged republic, which is that England was in many ways republic in kind of some of its forms, um, and it relied on local office holders in the localities to enforce authority. So thinking about how the state is you know people are really intricately kind of involved in the way the state is operating and that and Michael Braddock's work is good on this as well and that this is kind of there are a network of agencies in the state so I suppose that the way I kind of look at it is thinking about the ways in which we have these relationships between different actors and how that's allowing government to really rise um, and the notion of citizenship is also interesting um, and it's been argued that kind of in different areas people are kind of starting to gain kind of knowledge and experience of kind of the politics of citizenship and kind of Phil Whittington's work is quite good at kind of talking about how that's working in urban areas um 
but I think mainly it's kind of important to stress the way that yeah the, the state is definitely changing but how kind of people are integral to many of its activities I think is an important point to make sure that you're kind of aware of yeah thank you so that's the end of my questions but um just before we go is there anything else uh you think would be important to mention regarding popular politics in this period no I think I think that's my main one my my big (laughs) my big other thing is as I kind of stress throughout is is making sure that we're aware of the kind of varieties of things that are affecting popular politics and that includes like my own research tries to focus a lot on on the kind of economic dimension of it which I think sometimes gets overlooked um I think that's an important point and also I guess the final thing is the reaction of the state itself to popular politics it's really interesting because as you can imagine they don't want their subjects to rebel and riot uh that's pretty scary for them they're afraid of the many-headed monster but at the same time governments are aware as I said before that they need this kind of they almost need the participation of subjects and it does mean they themselves are constantly appealing to public opinion and that's something Lake and Pinkers talk about as well so it's an interesting dimension of looking at their reaction to it as well okay brilliant uh thank you very much Ellen for speaking with me today yeah thank you for having me thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods if you enjoyed it please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.